1: everyone, and welcome back to our podcast where we talk about new books in media and communications. I am your host, Marcy Maserato. With me today are actually three guests, John Durham-Peters, Florian Springer, and Christina Vogt, who are here to talk about their book, Action at a Distance. John, Florian, Christina, welcome, and thank you all so much for uh, joining us today. Great to be here. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Yeah, I'm really excited to, uh, to talk to all of you about this really unique project that you worked on. So to start, I'd like to um, give you an opportunity for each of you to kind of introduce yourself and share with our listeners a little bit about your professional and educational background. So a little bit about your journey. Um, so John, uh, who's, who was just recently on, on the podcast, um, I'll put the spotlight on you to, to get us started with that.
0: Sure. Thank you. So I was born in the Rocky Mountains and educated on the coasts and have lived maybe six years of my life in Europe. So my life has been one with a lot of distance in it and one with a lot of time in it. And so I think I come by these these questions naturally. I studied undergrad at the University of Utah, PhD at Stanford, taught at the University of Iowa, and I'm now teaching at Yale in English and in film and media studies. I'm the chair of film and media studies, and we're trying to figure out how to make a little more media studies out of film and media studies at Yale. So that's basically my story in a nutshell.
1: Wonderful, thanks John. Florian?
2: Yeah, my name is Florian Sprenger. I'm a professor for virtual humanities, um, and I'm at the moment in the um, happy position to uh, return to the place where I studied. I started this new position uh, last spring. Coming back to to the University of Bochum, where I studied, uh, began to study in two thousand one, and uh, feels like coming home. So I'm very happy at the moment, um, even though I haven't been at my office because I started after uh, the pandemic started. But I'm looking forward to uh, finally meet my students uh, sometime in the next next few months, hopefully.
1: Wonderful. Yes, I, I agree with you on that. Uh, and Christina, uh, yeah,
3: hi. Um, uh, I am a, an associate professor. Uh, Let me do that again. I'm an associate professor for uh, German and European Media Studies, and I work at the University of California in Santa Barbara. And I'm a recent transplant. I moved to the U.S. only three years ago, and before that, I worked at Humboldt University in Berlin as a visiting professor for cultural theory and history. And... I teach within programs of comparative literature, German, and film media studies um, here in California. And I would say I'm mostly interested right now in trying to make scientists and engineers understand what we do in media studies. Yes,
1: thank you for that. <laughs> that's, that's great. Um, so th- thank you for, for your brief intros, and, and that gives you a little bit of context. So how do you all know each other. So how did this kind of project come about? Um, I I know that I'm super curious to know about that.
3: Well, Florian and I know each other um, for years because we met in Weimar um, in a PhD program on media and history. Um, and John has been—I uh, don't know what to what to call you, John—but for me, John was always the face of media philosophy in the U.S. So I—I um, I don't know when I first met you, John, but I think it must be six, at seven least, years ago. Yeah. And yeah. at least <laughs> maybe I'm a little I'm bit on, on the- I don't know. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, I mean, it's 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 hard to tell, Marcy, when we actually met. Florian, do you have a better uh, chronology of our, yeah, of, yeah, our social, <laughs> of the social aspects? I think I met John
2: um, in 2007. I looked it up, so I not know the date, um, because there was a huge uh, conference on Marshall McLuhan mm-hmm. in Bayreuth in, in Germany, in the town of Richard Wagner. Very interesting constellation to bring together Wagner and uh, Marshall McLuhan yes, and this, conference, it is. <laughs> this conference is very famous because um, everyone was there and uh, it was like for, for many many PhD students who, who um, came to Beirut, this was uh, the place where they met uh, all these famous people like John and many others so um, it's like a family gathering or the history of a family gathering gathering with this conference in Bayreuth, where, where I met John for the first time and also many other people
1: exciting. That's how great. So um, now with Action at Distance, this is part of a series, correct? Yeah. Yes. Okay. So to, to kind of give a little bit of, um, John, if you will, can you give a little bit of context in terms of how perhaps this, this project started?
0: Well, I am actually the uh, latecomer to the uh, project. So I think it'd be better for Florian and, and Christina to, to do so. But I should put in a plug because Florian has a really wonderful volume in the same series, which I'm going to teach again, on thinking about what happens when you have digital networks and the unintended consequences.
2: Yeah, maybe I can tell us something about the, the history of this book series. So, the book, book is um, part of the series uh, Terms of Media, or In Search of Media, rather, um, which developed out of a series of two conferences that was organized by the Center for Digital Cultures at the University of Luneburg, together with Wendy Chan and Brown University. So, and I was part of the of the team that organized these conferences. So, at this one conference in, in Luneburg, um, where we try to invite people from from the U.S. or English-speaking contexts to Germany. And then we had this conference at, at uh, Brown University where we did it the other way around. And out of this conference de- developed the idea of making a series of, of small, short books with two or three papers, articles, or chapters um, on the terms of media, on the, the terms that are important for studying media. And I think there are... are five or six books already published um, on markets, on archives, on machine communication, um, pattern discrimination, action at a distance. That's our book. And I think it's the latest book that was published. And I think there are several others um, following. Um, and the book series is published um, in collaboration with both Maison Press, small publishing, open access publishing house in Lüneburg um, and University of Minnesota Press for the American context. Um and for us it's very important that the book series is open access because we believe in op- open access as a mm-hmm. scholarly publishing format for the future um, and of course the maison press also has several other books and several other book series but I think this is really the the most international aspect of of this this press
3: Yeah and maybe I can add that the 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 book has a as Florian already mentioned uh, has a has been a while um, has been in the making. I actually just received it three weeks ago. I can you believe it? Because it's a G- German no. <laughs> you haven't received it at all. Only well that's like one of those funny aspects about publishing or um meanwhile um <laughs> I already received
2: my second <laughs> dose of books. I'm sorry <laughs> <laughs>
3: yeah because it's a german-american collaboration and uh, one of the publishers is in germany and the other one the the online publishing part is in germany located or hosted in germany and the um and the physical um uh hard copy version comes uh, from minnesota press um so it was ba- basically shipped from the u.s to germany and then back to me and john in the u.s so it's um it has all these awkward, the project had a lot of awkward bumps in the road and um, had to cover a lot of distance. But what I wanted to point out is that from the beginning it was really a a project about physics and media. But physics and media cannot be a term of media. So this aspect of people who work in in history uh, of technological media, media technologies, communication on the one hand, but who also have a a certain philosophical, um, well, thinking in their work um, that is very heavily influenced by, um, by continental archives, um, European philosophies, European history, um, and at the same time mixes with uh, North American communication and media studies. So this, this question, how, do, how does what place has, has physics and have physical concepts in the context of media Studies, I think that was something that was there from the beginning, and that actually led to this, I think, wonderful um, uh, version now, action at a distance that brings those um, perspectives together.
1: Great, that's um, so. When I mean, it's a, it's such a great title, and it really does. I think when you think about action at a distance, it really do, the the physics component of it is is in there, right? Um, so, how do you? Can you each um, talk a little bit about um, how is it that you define Action at a distance—to to kind of unpack that a little bit for our listeners. Yeah. <laughs> Who
3: should start? <laughs> well, I, I actually I shouldn't start. I should be the last one because Florian has the first um, article in the in the essay, and I think really that Florian, Florian's paper, you your paper really is um, works closest with the concept of action at a distance. While I'll work more. I do a little bit of a, a judo move with it. I, I work rather with action uh, across distance. That's a
2: nice way to phrase it. Yes, um, so I'm, I'm interested in, in the question of how mediation, how transmission were conceived in the history of physics and in the history of media theory, and how how physics and media theory, in a way, form a constant exchanges of concepts between 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 these two disciplines. Um, and action at a distance from the beginning, from the first formulation, and I think in Aristotle's work, um, was bound to a question of mediation. How do objects act on each other when they are spatially apart, when there is a distance between them? What happens betre- between the objects and what is the medium that transmits between them or that transmits forces between them? Um, for example, imagine two stars or two, two bodies um, that are apart, but that's still are in a relation to each other and one body acts on the other. And this question of action at a distance um, becomes very important at the moment when electricity emerges as a, as a new force in the late 17th um, and 19, 18th century. And the question arises, how can we transmit this force of electricity between two places? What happens between two places when there's an electric force between them? When you, when you rub, for example, a piece of glass and hold it near some brass gold, then the brass gold starts to move. That's the experiment that everyone knows from from school. So there is a kind of of, um, unexplainable thing happening between the glass and the brass gold. And that's exactly where the question of action at a distance comes in. While this is only a very small distance between the brass brass gold and and the, the rubbed piece of glass, um, this, the action of action of a dis, at a distance can be very very huge when you um, look at stars, for example. That's that's the question that comes up with Isaac Newton: How do two bodies that are apart act on each other? Is there a medium between them, or is is the the action transmitted immediately? So the question of action at a distance is always a question of mediation: if there is a medium, or if there is no medium. And for physics, it is obvious that there must be a medium because there cannot be an immediate action at a distance. There always must be something in between that mediates between the two bodies or between the two entities or maybe also between the two people. Um, so this is in a way the, the theoretical background uh, that I try to uh, try to describe in my, my chapter in the history of electric research. Um, yeah, maybe John can say more about his conception of action at a distance. I think that's very close to or the, the starting point is very similar.
0: Yes, it, it is very much. Um, one thing I think it's helpful for our American um, listeners is that I think typical students and scholars, even in the U.S., think of media studies as being about programming, or maybe audiences, or maybe industries. But they think it's about the Kardashians or about the Twitter-armed presidency. You know, and all those things are very important parts of media. But I think the three of us. Um, in this book all really feel that you can't understand how the media operate without understanding the intellectual history of the basic concepts. Be- because these concepts carry baggage and they push us in certain directions and, and, and pull us in certain directions and kind of you know have a whole history um, with them. And, and this is very much the case with the term communication, which if you look in the 17th century, it's much more of a physics term than it is a kind of mind-to-mind or language term. You can actually see where the term communication shifts. Um, It's in works such as John Locke, the English philosopher, in 1690, his essay concerning human understanding, which he does this novel move of applying a term which was used by people like Isaac Newton to talk about how we share thoughts, one with another, And so this very history of of this term communication leads us to expect that when we talk with each other, we might have some kind of magical or instantaneous transfer, Um, like what seems to happen in the case of electricity or magnetism or static electricity or heat or all of these uh, physical processes. And of course, it never happens when you're actually talking with people um, in language. And so here's an example of how the i mean the intellectual history of this term which comes from physics leads us astray leads us to think of instantaneous automatic connection when in fact the work that we do in everyday life one with another via media via language via our bodies via our our time and space is hard and difficult and deeply mediated and and so i think an, another commitment that all three of us share is trying to uh, discover the mediation within the um, immediacy, within the supposed immediacy. Florian has a really wonderful line um, in an earlier book in which he says, theories of immediacy are instructions on how to be powerless. That is, if you assume that things happen immediately, you've given up your ability to understand the infrastructure, to understand the the, the technique, the shape, where the real power lies. And so... Uh, You know, for me and I think for Florian and Christina, the study of the history of terms is not just an antiquarian project, it's something which really aids us in trying to understand how it is that a president can hijack a nation with um, a Twitter account. It really does help us understand very fundamental questions um, about mediation and about how we trick ourselves and about how we get tricked to imagine that everything is smooth and automatic when in fact the work of media and communication is mediated and complicated and rich and full of obstacles and trouble. So yeah, we want to stir up trouble. And that's looking at the history of our basic concepts is a great way of stirring up trouble.
1: That's great. That's uh, Thank you, um, John and, and Florian, for kind of expanding on that to really looking at the basic concepts. And uh, Florian, you You start really talking about this idea of transmission, Mm
3: -hmm.
1: uh, which is can still at that time when you're, when you're referring to Stephen Gray about it being entirely without meaning or application. And you really kind of even talk about, um, Marshall McLuhan in that sense, it's like a medium without a message at that time. And then how, um, John just made the point of looking at communication being a, a physics term where it meant a connection between cause and effect, which it it's. Very different nowadays in terms of how we look at that. Can you expand a little bit more on how you your research has viewed the idea of transmission and communication and how it's evolved from that time in the 18th century to now?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I can start by 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 retelling the story of Stephen Gray. Stephen Gray is a British physicist, or actually, has a dyer, and he started to become interested in, in physics and especially the the physics of electricity in the 1720s, 1730s. Um, so he wasn't kind of an amateur scientist, in the beginning, he wasn't really taken serious by by the by the other scientists at the Royal Royal Society in London. But then he made some very, very famous experiments on the on the, um, on conduction, on, on conducting electricity through wires. Um, so he took pieces of, of um, copper wire in the beginning, like twenty feet wires, and in the end, even the wires that were like six hundred feet long, and transmitted electricity through these wires to show that there was a force that was moving through these wires and that was acting at the other side of the wire. So he touched one side of the wire with a wrapped tube of glass or later with an electrical machine, and then something happened at the other side. And there was no time difference between it. There was no perceivable difference between the two events. And that, that was for him the really important point because it seemed that electricity was immediate, that there was an instantaneous transmission. There was no time between the two events but still it was obvious that there must have been a medium between and between them because they couldn't be an instantaneous action at a distance that was forbidden by the laws of physics so electricity must must be kind of a medium that takes almost no time but still a little bit of time and i'm interested in this this little bit of time this very very small time but still time so in that non in um, kind of uh, it's it's not no time but a little bit of time um, and I think this, this um, very small amounts of time are extremely important for all technical media. If we look at what, what's happening right now, we have, everyone is sitting. Everyone of us is sitting at home and speaking into microphone. And the, the packets that are made up of, of the data that we're speaking into the microphone and that's um, distributed through the Internet to all the other three people at the other ends of, of the wires Um, These packets are extremely extremely fast. It seems like there is no delay between us. But of course, there's a delay because it takes time for the packets to come from from Berlin to Santa Barbara, to the other other end of the world. Um, And what happens in between is a process of technical synchronization that makes it possible that it seems like there is no delay. But the delay is technically totally important. Without this delay... It wouldn't work because if there was no delay, everything would happen at the same time and uh, data would be transmitted instantaneously. And then there would be no time to, to do something with these data, to um, store them, to transmit them, to distribute them. Um, so actually, without this delay, technical media wouldn't work. And that's, that's why, why I came to this conclusion that uh, John already quoted. If, if we think of media as something that is immediate, as something that happens instantan- instantaneously, then we lose sight of this, this delay that is so important for all technical media. And that's actually the condition for them to work, for them to, to do something and for them to transmit data and to make it possible that we um, sit somewhere on our de- at our desks um, at different places on this planet and talk to each other in in a way that seems to happen immediate, but that's actually not immediate.
1: And you also talk, you make a a point of talking about um, kind of the evolution of, um, as the wire becomes a cable and you even bring in Shakespeare's puck uh, from a Mm -hmm. midsummer dream. So can you expand a little bit about that and and that kind of technological evolution, what that really means for us now?
2: Mm, well, Well, Stephen Gray, he, he had no idea of, of medium or of transmission. There, were, there was no intention of transmitting anything. It was just about electrical actions that were happening on both sides of the wires. So he had no idea of using of, of developing something like telegraphy. Um, he was only interested in the physical properties of electricity. And with the rise of electromagnetic tele- telegraphy around 100 years later, this um, whole question of an instantaneous connection became very important for, for this conception of, a, of what Marshall McLuhan later called the global village. So with um, telegraphy, it became possible to transmit messages between different places on, on Earth. And the idea was, or the, the phantasm behind that, or the imaginary was that um, that telegraphy was able to create a kind of global connectivity in which everyone or every place um, would be immediately connected to all other places, Um, And this is also something that we, of course, um, that that continued um, in the 20th century with with, um, radio, with television, and of course, with the internet as as a kind of a global medium that seems immediate, but actually is not immediate. Um, Yeah.
1: Great. And so when we think about uh, Marshall McLuhan and the concept of the global village, then we're talking about this idea, as you just mentioned, that there really wasn't the medium. And then the cable becomes that to where all of a sudden we're able to harness the power of the electricity. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, how does that, and this could be for um, Christina or John, how is it that uh, in your own research and what you talk about in your respective chapters, how does that transformation from kind of the, the phantasm of the physics into something more tangible into the medium, how does that really transform the notion of human communication or communication with um, technology? John, you have um, to I was going to say, one.
0: Christina, you should you should take it.
3: <laughs> <Sorry>.
0: <laughs> um, we, I mean, all three of us have a friend named Bernard Ziegert, um, who I, I believe was a teacher specifically specific, specifically of Christina. Um, And he likes to say that what we call social media is actually a software explosion of computers talking to each other. And so when you go on Facebook, it isn't that you're talking to the person on the other end, it is that you're uploading your data into your computer, which then goes to their computer. And that's really that the humans are a kind of, you know, phantasmal add on to, to, to this big kind of strange alien species a data hungry, um, wired and wireless species of, of a software explosion. Um, that might sound like a, like a kind of alienating way to think about, um, human communication, because obviously people do feel, um, connected, um, in some ways via social media. But I mean, I think it helps to like puncture, you know, the dream of someone like, um, Mark Zuckerberg, you know, that the aim of Facebook is, is to connect people, to build community. No, that's not the aim of Facebook. The aim of Facebook is to scrape data and sell it to advertisers. And, you know, it'd be much better if we had greater clarity about what the structure of these media um, is so that we can actually use them more strategically, more shrewdly, more, um, more wisely, so we can get taken to the cleaners um, less often. I mean, it's, it's amazing that we are actually willing to pay for the infrastructure of a business like, um, like Facebook. You know, we buy the laptops, we pay, pay for the uh, electricity. So we have the privilege of uploading data, data to them. I mean, it's sort of like um, buying a printer so that you have, you know, you get the printer for free so that you have to keep paying for the ink. I mean, it's, it's, there are all these, you know, bizarre business models um, out there in which people actually get get deluded by the impression that they are communicating authentically instantaneously immediately when in fact there are intermediaries who are using the leverage of data scraping data analytics of you know being able to break down data flows to to um, to get rich in the case of some people or to distort elections in the case of other people or to produce propaganda and doubt and distrust. And you know, I think uh, for democratic life it would be much better if we all had a, a much better sense. You know, if Okay, just to back up, you asked about human communication. Everybody knows that democracy depends upon communication, upon the will of the people being expressed and the people being able to speak one with another. That goal would be so much better served if we were much more literate about the infrastructures of media and um, of media rather than of so-called immediacy.
3: Yeah, maybe I can I can jump in, Marcy, if you oh, absolutely. if you don't mind at this point, because this question of literacy is also something um, that. Is important for the status or the the status of um, facticity or the question of facticity and truth, and I I do it in my paper in the context of science, because I think right now this is really crucial that we actually not only work with the history of physics and the history of sciences um, as media um, theorists, but also to start looking at what is going on in media terms within the sciences and within engineering. And because this question of power that lies in infrastructures and communication networks is also a question that can be asked within the field of um, uh, natural sciences and um, and engineering, and I think there is there is a there is a lot of work to be done. Um, so when I work with scientists, I. Uh, I actually go into their labs and I speak with them and I look at their operational chains, the uh, the chains of operations in their experimental setups. And there is a similar problem because it's not really clear at every step uh, where the data come from that are um, used and what status of reality they actually have. So there's there's a similar epistemological question um, within the field of exact sciences. Mm.
1: And I'm, I'm curious to to hear from, from each of you, how, you know, in, in your book and in each of your respective essays, it's, it's a small book, they're short essays, but it's very, you're presenting some really fascinating and, and complex ideas. How do you, or do you, um, how, teach this to your undergraduate students. How, such as what um, John was just talking about in terms of social media companies are not really their their data collectors, rather than communication tools, um, and kind of these these concepts of of mediums and how we're communicating and how it's impacting and how it's not. How do you handle that in the classroom in a pedagogical sense? We can start with you, Christina. Well,
3: I I'm not really teaching social media because I don't teach mass media in my classes. I really teach um, uh, classes that have more to do with epistemology and um, and the question of um, how do we actually know what we know and how do we write it. So I, I'm 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 i, I if I teach uh, if, I, if my teaching goes into these areas of mass media particular social media, it usually is from a distance. So I basically try to look at these um, technologies and what they proclaim that they are doing as a rhetoric. So when people start talking about artificial intelligence, I very often ask the question, is this really about intelligence or is this about something else? So for me, I, I, I often look at it from a little bit of a distance, not so much from the actual experience and practices and representations, um, but I look at something like Google or Facebook as, um, as places where certain consumer is produced and where certain behavioral design is actually um, executed. And this, this technology is not just the outcome of a certain corporation or the politics of today, but it also can be situated in longer history, for example, behaviorism. Um, So I always try to separate my students a little bit from their present day time, which they don't like because they really like, (laughs) my students very much like to live in the present, and particularly in California, history is not that prominent in, in the minds and heads of most of my students, but I try to make them separate a little bit from their immediate present in order to look at these um, technologies and their interfaces as something that has been created and has been crafted in context of power structures, political economy, etc. Yes, yes, it does. Sense? Thank
1: you. Yeah, that that's that's great context to see how this kind of works in in the pedagogical setting for you. Um, Florian, how does um, how do you kind of um, handle this in in your classroom?
2: Well, I haven't been to a classroom in the last. Uh, Nine months, I think, but we had very good uh, good discussions with my students about this um, about, about a question that that actually leads to the core of this question of immediacy and mediation that we discussed. Um, in Germany, we have um, the terms uh, "distanzlehre" for teaching at a distance for for what we are doing at the moment. We are using Zoom and and um, other programs to teach, and "präsenzlehre" teaching in presence. That means teaching in a room with. Uh, people or with students that are present, that are bodily present there, and that you can could even touch or could can look at, so there are bodies there. And that's the idea of, of presence, as someone sitting next to you or sitting um, in the same room. Um, and I think this, this idea of presence that is behind this idea of Präsenzlehre is, is very powerful because it means, um, or it has an, a kind of a platonic sense of um immediate transmission that means that um only in presence only when when you're looking at someone only when you're close to someone and when you're when you talk to someone um then you can reach this kind of of wisdom or then you can create new knowledge and this is a very very powerful conception of of teaching in germany i think and it becomes quite problematic at the moment because we cannot teach in presence and there are people who say that um, when we um use software to teach when we do online teaching or teaching at a distance um, then all this kind of knowledge or this this um, coming together is lost. Of course there are certainly aspects of teaching that are lost when we are teaching teaching um, online. Certainly um, we, all these questions of, of gestures, of bodily presence um, of a certain kind of interaction is lost. But on the other hand um, online teaching gives us a lot of new opportunities. We can teach asynchronously that means students can um, read and watch their lectures whenever they want to do that. They can have their own, their own rhythm. Um, they can integrate teaching or, or learning into their daily lives much easier. Um, but at the core of this debate about the um, uh, advantages and disadvantages of each form of teaching, I think, is, is this question of immediacy and mediation. So there are people, or the, the platonic discourse of teaching says that we can only really teach when we are present. Um, and John described this in, in his book, Speaking in Judea, perfectly, this platonic ideal of communication, that communication only works when you're, when you're speaking to someone. So the voice gets an extreme power in this conception. Um, and behind it is, is, is an idea of immediacy, that um, knowledge relies on immediate transmission between two people. And from media theory point of, of view, um, the mediation that happens between two people um, is much more important, and it's not a question of how we, trans- how we how we immediately connect two souls, but it's a question of what happens between them. How do we arrange knowledge? How do we transmit knowledge? What are the media, both of teaching and of learning, that become much more important? And um, this, in ways, is a, is a question that raised uh, that was raised in the last um, nine months when when I was talking with my students or reflecting with my students on the current situation of of teaching, and they are very, very interested in. Reflecting what what happens with them, what happens with their learning, what what are the conditions of learning for them in this current situation?
1: Wonderful, thank you for that context, John.
0: Thank you. This is very much on my mind because Monday morning at ten thirty, I give my first lecture to what is um, what currently has one hundred twenty five students enrolled, a class at Yale called Introduction to Media, and I basically get to teach a bunch of future Supreme Court justices and entrepreneurs and coders and, you know, future presidents of the U.S. if if Yale, uh, if the Yale uh, tradition continues, how to think about media. And so I've, that's all I've been thinking about really for the last weeks is how should I a- approach this class? And on day one, we're going to analyze Zoom, and I'm going to try to help them think about, um, you know, how to, uh, you know, how to look at, at the taken for granted, how to really think about the stakes of distance learning and um, what is lost. On day two, we're going to talk about the sea and what, what it would be like to be animals, intelligent animals who lived in the sea, that is, who existed without engineering, without books, without fire, without architecture, without compasses, and, and, uh, and, and so on. And the reason that I'm gonna start in the C is because I want us to find as unfamiliar an environment as possible. Because, you know, when, when you teach media studies, the students come into the classroom with a head full of stuff. I mean, they know everything about media. They've been, they've been immersed in media for, for 20 years of, of their life. It's very different than when you start teaching a class about say, I don't know, quantum physics. You know, they might have heard about quarks and flavors, but you know, their heads are empty. And the job of the quantum physics class is to fill the students' heads, you know, with new stuff. And I think in some ways the job of the media professor is to take away our, um, stuff that is in the heads of the students and to try to get them to, to, to say, well, what would it, what would a mediated environment be if I were an octopus, a highly intelligent octopus in which... My neurons were both in my brain and in in my tentacles, or in a in a dolphin, in which I was a very social animal, but I had no library, and I had no way to transmit knowledge uh, from one generation to um, another except by, you know, um, transmission through through voice or through sound, and and so, I mean, I do try to, I mean, my pedagogical strategy is to defamiliarize, to do thought experiments. To try to find like wacky or off-center approaches which allow um, students to rethink media, to rethink stuff which they think they think that they know really well. So, you know, another way of putting this is, I mean, in a way it is kind of platonic because I really think Socrates had something great about education is you need to think about what you take for granted and try to become ignorant about what you're most assured about. And if I can get them to say for a second, wow, what is a medium? What's a mass medium? What's an internet? What's an infrastructure? What does walking on two feet have to do with the fact that I actually have a laptop? It has a lot to do with um, with that fact. Um, Then we'll probably have a, a better world. At least that's my hope.
1: Yeah, that's a great hope. I think that we all <laughs> that we all share, uh, and I appreciate you mentioning specifically defamiliarization because that is um, something that uh, I, I, you know, being outside of your comfort zone and being defamiliarized with something is really how, it, it, you know, in my research and in some of the things that I study and look at it in terms of uh, popular media, for example, popular culture and television and film, It's uh, those are the moments that we're learning can really occur, is when all of a sudden your worldview is shifted. And as Christina mentioned earlier, how students, in terms of history or not, <laughs> they like to be where they're at. <laughs> they like to be in the present. So even shifting the context of looking at something historically can really be um perhaps jarring depending on on the context. So I, I definitely agree uh, and can see the value of that. So that's that's definitely, I think you all have a pedagogical approach in in really looking at this and what you talk about in your book about going back to the very beginning to really contextualize all of these different elements of what mass media looks like or communication looks like and how physics really has influenced these different concepts that we look at so that we believe that we fundamentally understand, you know, teaching like an intro to communication course with students. I think a lot of times they come in thinking, well, I can speak and I can read and I can write. And they think that they're good communicators. I think perhaps most people make that assumption, right? In, in terms of thinking that we're good communicators by default, which it, which we're not so often. Yeah, yeah, and I and I
3: I think this uh, it's good that you bring those um, media procedures up, like reading and writing, because I think that's this is something the book demonstrates very well. That there are there are three different ways to read and write at display in in, in, the, in this little book. And at the same time they are they are very much connected because there's a reflection and I think that's something really essential. For media theory, at least in this particular tradition, that um, thinking through something is always thinking with a medium. And that also implies a reflection on one's own writing and constructing of knowledge. And that that people like um, not just students, but also scholars. Um, really operate always from a distance by operating through concepts, that a concept in itself, yeah, the, the fact that we use language to communicate in itself is, is action at a distance or action across distance. So we always already operate um, from a distance when we start speaking. And this is something that is not very often reflected, but once we start reflecting, Um, on, you know, how do we produce this? How do we use words? um, What other aesthetic procedures are there? um, Images, um, uh, modeling procedures, computer simulations. Then we can actually produce a genealogy of these different communication procedures um, that are not so isolated from each other. And for me, it's always important to, at at one point, point out the specificity, specificity of a, a certain procedure or technology, and at the same time provide a um, yeah, sometimes even cosmological connectivity um, to make sense of, um, of these procedures.
1: Wonderful, yes. I I this that kind of a question that it brings to my mind, um, Christina, as you as you mentioned that, is we, we just talked a little bit about kind of your each of your individual approaches in, in relation to education or pedagogy, what is it that, um, you all hope in terms of, um, professionally or perhaps other academics, um, Christina, you had mentioned that you had kind of written this, um, in, you know, for the context of scientists to be able to do media studies. So I'm curious to know what is, what is the professional approach and and what do you hope that other scholars, academics, or perhaps industry professionals can, can get out of what you're discussing in, in your respective, um, articles.
3: Ooh, that's a big question for me. I, I, I have all kinds of weird hopes and wishes, but what I think the, the, the driving force be, be behind my article in this paper is really, how can I work with living scientists and engineers? How can I start a dialogue with them? And. This has been really behind my work from the beginning, even when I was still working on history of philosophy and, and science mostly. But right now, I really want to engage people in the sciences and in engineering when it comes to these questions of reflection, because I think uh, what John mentioned, what is necessary um, in, in, in the context of undergraduate and graduate teaching is also necessary, I think, in, um, in matters of um, scientific um, activity because there's so much pressure um, on on reducing results uh, in a limited amount of time that I find very um, uh, worrisome. Um, so I really hope that um, we find ways to better insert ourselves as media theorists uh, at the one hand in, into actually scientific activity um, or engineering activity, systems building, and at the same time I hope that we function a little bit as, as a um, – uh, well, like Michel Sayers' figure of the parasite that Florian's article uh, mentions, that we really function as something which makes things not necessarily go faster and more profitable and smooth, but rather who ask questions that might contain ethical um, thoughts, that might contain political economic thoughts, and that in the end really uh, argues for the individual scientists and engineers in these systems, because I really am worried when I look at our undergraduates here, particularly in computer sciences, how fast they are pushed through their education, uh, how very little time they have to focus on anything but uh, uh, their immediate subjects um, that make them you know, graduate faster. A lot of them don't even graduate because they get hired right out of their third year um, into the industry. And basically, what I'm seeing here is that the industry is trying to produce uh, machines, human machines, uh, called computer programmers, and that's that's something that I find very worrisome. And I wish that um, media studies could become more of an of an intermediate field between, you know, the traditional language based humanities mm-hmm. um, on the one hand, and mathematical writing based sciences and technology oriented. Um, disciplines on the other because without this connectivity without this type of reflection um, there really is no chance of an ethical a more ethical science a more ethical type of science and uh, mass media industry you could say um, so um, when john thinks about the former presidents that he might be educating at yale i think about the former um i don't know um uh, I'm not going to personify my students, but I'm thinking about the guys who who get hired right into into the industries, get get snatched up by Amazon, Google, Facebook, etc., and um, or the, the the military complex, which is also very present here on the West Coast, uh, without giving them a chance to actually ask the question of what they're doing is actually what they want to do. And I'm really excited when I when I see how uh, you know people at Google try to. Um, uh, actually workers at google try to uh, create uh, union-like um, activities and try to create some resistance within the systems um, because i think that's really where where media um, studies could actually do more work
1: wonderful Can I say
3: yeah a really big
0: amen to that
1: yes <laughs> if, um,
0: you know I, I don't know if if i should um, this isn't really dirty laundry, but it's it's just um, a local example of how I wish that everybody understood that media studies is both a reformation and a redemption of the humanities, properly understood. Um, you know that that's putting it really grandiosely, but at, at Yale, the provost recently has had all these discussions about planetary solutions. That's the uh, that's that's the title: planetary solutions. And it's mostly a a very STEM kind of a project. And I keep trying to elbow my way in there and say, uh, we need humanities um, involved. And the scientists are really lovely. They're really kind. And they say, oh, yes, you're so right. We need humanities because we need to communicate publicly about the dangers of climate change. And I said, yes. But the humanities can actually rethink at the very core of what what STEM is uh, is doing. If you invite us um, to dialogue with you, you know, and and this might sound arrogant or imperial, and I certainly don't mean it that way, but I think that media studies helps us understand humanities as sort of reflection about the vehicles by which we produce the world. We produce knowledge about the world, but we also produce ourselves, and 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 this kind of understanding is true for poetry and for sculpture and for symphonies it's also true for data sets and theorems and you know microchips you know all of these things are are continuous forms of of human intelligence and creativity and thus properly understood part of the humanities i know that's grandiose and um, ambitious and um, it takes so much work to dialogue with with stem people because in part we humanists get so much out of it, and they get so little out of it, because we often just are troublemakers. We don't help them produce the next article that's going to help them you know, get their grants. We want to ask big questions, and sometimes STEM fields are designed not, as Christine is saying, to ask big questions. So I know it's tricky, but humanities could really be in, in, re-thunk, rethought in, in much grander ways, and I hope we will
1: agree I, I hope we will too because you know there's i remember when i was in uh, working on uh, many years ago and i was working on my my phd one of the fellow students said well you know they're they as in the powers that be want to cut humanities funding and you know the arts and humanities and it's like well the humanities is what makes the human so this idea is like where you have a lot of the the thinking and you know being, you know, the literature, the philosophy, and you know the the writing and the conversations, and truly getting away from, as Christina mentioned, this idea of students who are in these very rigorous STEM programs becoming machines. And there's a very slow movement in medical schools, for example, to actually bring in the humanities for students to have like a course in literature, which seems so bizarre. Uh, to some, and I, w- I would say for the humanities, perhaps not because we can understand how important and beneficial it can actually be for a resident, you know, for a medical student, rather to actually engage with even if it's like narrative medicine and looking at literature and looking at poetry, because it not only gives them a chance to uh, you know connect with other physicians gives them a chance to give their brain, you know their brain a break from such rigorous science and medicine that they're doing but it also allows them a space to be human and and I think that there's we're, we're just not there yet and and I do hope that we can you know we can really have the humanities and and you know, perhaps even live in, in a world that's much more interdisciplinary so that there's not this complete divide between, you know, the, quote, hard sciences and soft sciences and the arts and then the humanities and social sciences and so on and so forth.
2: Yeah, I think to, to get to this point, yeah. it's it's important for us as as humanities scholars to concentrate on our strength. And I think two of our strengths are developing concepts and writing good stories, writing good histories. Um, both in the sense of, of writing a good story and writing an exact history with a strong historical background and uh, good good sources and um, going to libraries um, and using the archives, and I think these two strengths um, are really important uh, for for what what the three of you have been describing and for for the point or the the world that uh, Marcy imagined. Um,
1: Absolutely, I, I I totally agree with that. <laughs> so, uh, go ahead. And-
3: I just, I just had a crazy thought. May may I just, um, you know, one one interesting thing about this uh, teaching at a distance that we're experiencing. I mean, my first move was to look, you know, once again into the history and how how these early concepts of distant classrooms really have everything to do with um, people saying that this is going to help education, higher education in the US, be more inclusive. But then it turned out to be really. Uh, a, a way to, um, to, uh, to do to set up prison education. Um, so a very um, disenchanting history that distant education in the US actually has. Um, but at the same time I, I, I catch myself sometimes uh, because and now this since everybody's sitting at home, um, all my colleagues are, are at home and they are somewhere weirdly somehow everybody is weirdly accessible. And I have all these groups now, research groups across the world where we meet once a month and we talk about philosophical concepts, um, socio-political questions, um, post-colonial critiques of European philosophies and all these, all these um, socialities are suddenly possible. So I caught myself asking, asking myself, what do we actually need a university for? I mean, can we, can we maybe, is there a potential in this um, terrible situation we are in right now to actually change um, this um, identity between institution and a certain type of education? So I think there's also some utopian potential um, in thinking in a little bit of a complicated way about the present. Through media theory, through media studies, and and I, I, yeah, maybe, maybe this this actually could also be a moment where um, some of those rather worrisome infrastructures um, in higher education can be rethought. I th- I think certainly it has the potential. Maybe it might not realize, but I do catch myself sometimes thinking that. Some of the academic communication has definitely improved since I'm not allowed to fly from A to B anymore.
2: (laughs) Um, I would would certainly say that we need universities. And I think that the current situation shows why we need them and why they are so precarious, uh, such such precarious uh, places in a pandemic, because um, there's no place or almost no other institution in, in our societies in which we meet so many people as a university, um, when we have a a class, we meet like 20 people, and these 20 people then go to other classes, they go to the library, um, they get something to eat, and they meet other people. So the university is actually a place where tens of thousands of people are uh, constantly intermingling and uh, exchanging with each other. And of course, in a pandemic, that's highly problematic, but I think this is the strength of the university and all the the online research groups that you mentioned, Christina, um, they become possible because of this Constant exchange that's happening in a university, um, and that uh, the university is the institution for this kind of exchange on an intellectual basis.
3: Absolutely, but why should an undergraduate pay hundred thousand dollars for those four years? That's the question. I'm not. I'm not. I don't want to get rid of the university, but the university is something which is, you know, in higher education, something really pricey, something very, you know, it's an entry into an elite career. making money, et cetera. This is something, this is the potential I see right now that people really ask um, those crucial questions um, um, uh, of basically pr- the price that, are, that, is, that is constructed within these, um, these places, within these institutions. And I agree. I think it needs proximity. It needs places of proximity in order to create this kind of international communication system um, and at the same time i think the question uh, why why an undergraduate here pays um, no more for his housing um, than for his tuition um, uh, really becomes uh, crucial and that that creates a lot of um, thought right now and I, I i like that aspect that collateral um, part of the pandemic because these people these these aspects of higher education suddenly become, questionable on a a very broad broad level. But Florian, I agree, I do not want to get rid of the university, but I question a little bit how much we also operate in terms of filtering um, and in terms of artificially creating Mm -hmm. elites, Mm -hmm. stabilizing elites. Because distant, I mean, that was the idea behind distant education to really be more inclusive, to bring higher education to everyone. That's also the way now, of course, universities try to sell all those wonderful formats that we have developed um, during the pandemic. Um, and I think there is still this possibility of creating a more inclusive higher education, um, but has to be well thought. And um, yeah, I just wanted to point out that it's not just a horror scenario that's unfolding right now, but there's also some interesting experience. And from an environmental point of view, I really don't understand why I have to fly everywhere to mm-hmm. give my talk you know before that i absolutely wanted to to do this by being physically present at at every um possible um at every single event i was invited to right now i start being much more selective uh um in in, in future planning because i really think there are things i can very well do from a distance and then there are things i really don't want to do from a distance for example teaching is something i really like to do in the classroom but I don't mind if there are people um, that are not present and who can and who want to participate in this physical, in this, in this immediate setting from a distance. So I I'm I'm just realizing how my perception changes a little bit um, now that I'm in it.
1: Sure. I, I think you know you bring up some, some very broad and just very big questions and they're very complex because I don't, I don't know that we have the answers to them, right? Perhaps we have some shifting perspectives, as you mentioned. And I think looking at the institution of higher education that uh, what you mentioned reminded me of like Paulo Freire and looking at like the pedagogy of the oppressed. And as, then as professors in this system, we are still, we are, regardless of how we teach and how student-centered it may be we're still there's still a grading system there's still an accreditation system there's still a you know the the, the university still a power system and we are a source of power within the classroom so what does that really look like when you know we versus when we're in person and not in person and and kind of everything that's happening on a global scale so i think those are definitely um good questions to ponder and I, it'll be interesting to see how that what kind of positive or negative impact that has on, um, academia moving forward. Right. Yeah. Um, so is there, um, any specific thing from each of your, you know, perhaps the the kind of a key point from each of your respective articles that you would like to, that we haven't covered uh, that you would like to share with our, with our listeners? or perhaps we've covered it all.
0: <laughs> no, we've never covered it all. You know, one of the funny things when we talk about education is as we're always concerned about how we get our, you know, good ideas into our students' heads, but I find that it's often hard for me to keep my own good ideas in my own head. And I'm not even sure what I wrote in that essay. It was really fun to write, but it's, it's vanished away in some ways, like things at a distance. So I'm glad that it's on paper for others to um, discover.
1: Yeah, I love the title of, of your essay, A Cornucopia of Meanwhiles, of just... These meanwhiles and and looking at you, you talk about simultaneous simultaneity and um, and also bring in Marshall McLuhan and and things like that. So I think it's you know all of your essays are very rich, and I think you know I, I definitely will will have to check out this series because I really like the concept behind it, and particularly as I think Florian mentioned at the beginning of our conversation that this is all open access, which is something that um, is definitely important to have that access to be able to share. Our, our scholarship with others, right? So I think that's great. Um, now I am—I know I'm curious, and, and I'm sure our listeners are as well. Uh, John, you briefly mentioned uh, in our previous uh, conversation, but if you can refresh us, what are um, what are you currently interested in, and what are you currently working on, or, or perhaps a future project that you may have in mind?
0: Yeah, you know, I I was working very hard last year on a book on the history of weather media. I mean, I'm really trying to understand media, meteorology. And, you know, somehow when the pandemic hit and somehow when democracies seemed to be collapsing and racism seemed to be out of the closet, it seemed somehow so much less relevant. And then suddenly, you know, the semester began and there's no time to think about anything. So right now. I, what I'm really thinking about is how I can get my students to think about media in a way that is really rich, and then then I'll go back, and you know try to think about how our basically I think the basic argument of my weather book would be that media are environments, both cultural and natural, and you know that's a common thing. to I mean McLuhan says that. I mean it's it's not unusual to say that, but. What does that mean when we're talking about climate change and potential catastrophe? So those are some things that, that I'm I'm worried about. Racism, catastrophe, climate change, democracy, how well, they all fit together somehow.
1: Yeah, those are huge topics and very important topics to to think about and, and, and to write about. Uh, Florian, what about you?
2: Um, well, at the moment, I'm working on a topic that at first sight seems very far away from from what I did in this paper. I'm, I'm interested in self-driving cars and other autonomous systems such as drones or robots, um, and specifically into the ways of word making that that um, they operate with. So the question for me is, how do autonomous systems, how do self-driving cars create their environment? How do they move in their, envir- in their environment? Um, how is the environment modeled? And How are, in this process of modeling their environment, how are what I call micro decisions implemented? How do do these cars know what to do? Um, And I think they they know this or in a certain way they they get this information by developing models of their environment. Um, So I'm interested in this kind of relation between sensor technology and filtering algorithms as ways of world making, of creating virtual worlds and virtual models of the world. Um, And this question is embedded in a um, much bigger question about the future of traffic and the future of transportation. Um, I think at the moment we are confronted with the end of um, fossil energy or we need to get rid of fossil energy and we need to get rid of a certain amount of cars. Maybe there will always be cars, but our conception of the car as a, and our conception of individual transportation certainly has to change in the next years. Um, and I think this is a question that's closely related to self-driving cars. And it, as a humanities scholar, I think it's important to critically engage in these debates to transform our understanding of traffic. Um, and that's what I'm interested in at the moment.
1: Wonderful. Yeah, that's super fascinating. And um, uh, definitely keep us posted on, <laughs> on, on the self-driving cars. And yeah, these autonomous systems. Um, there's a lot of, you know, in, in terms of like creative writing, there's a lot of sci fi writers that are interested in that, but I'm not sure that they usually, I don't know that they usually represent those ideas in in the best way possible. P- humorous, perhaps, but perhaps a little dangerous. Christina.
3: Uh, yeah, I'm. In, I'm currently editing. I'm in the last uh, steps of editing a um, special issue, or rather, a special stream of a new uh, online, open access uh, journal by UC Press. It's called Media and Environment Journal, um, and it's um, um, edited here by my colleagues Janet Walker and Alenda Cheng. Um, from UCSB, and we are doing a special stream on modeling the Pacific, which uh, is a result from a interdisciplinary conference we did two years ago here at UCSB on modeling oceans. Um, John John is going to be uh, in there. Uh, he's part of that um, special stream because he was he spoke at that conference and we recorded his talk. And for me, that's really exciting because um, once again, I'm dealing with different regimes of writing and speaking. And the engineers and and oceanographers and um, climate scientists that we invited, of course, none of them really wanted to write an essay for our publication. So we um, recorded their talks, and they basically speak about their work in a in a popular way, so that people without math and physics can actually understand what they're doing and how they create their models and what what might be issues behind their modeling. And then we have uh, some scholars from media studies and um, history uh, who talk about, um, who write articles about um, questions of modeling, oceanography, and the Pacific region as such. And uh, John is one of the people who uh, actually decided not to write an essay, but uh, whose talk we're going to put online uh, right next to the scientists. So I'm really excited about that. And as an author... Not an editor, but as an author, I'm very much still engaged in this question: um, Why are the objects in science always missing? And where I expect to find an object, I only find a model. Mm. So that's the the big theoretical question I'm I'm wrapping my head around like right now.
1: But yeah, I'm really excited. The, Journal should be online awesome. within a month. That's super exciting. Yeah. And, and you're, uh, and as an author, I think that's, that's a really, again, a big question to, 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 to wrap your head around. That's awesome. So I want to thank you all, John, Christina, Florian for, um, coming on the podcast today and spending a little bit of your time chatting with me and sharing this wonderful book and your work with our listeners. I, I very much appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you all for that.
0: Marcy, I just remembered one other thing. Sure. May I? Um, to, this, is, this is a funny little glitch in the history of, of publication that they decided to list the authors in alphabetical order, which really bothers me because it makes it look like in an American system, like the first author is, is like the designer.
1: Yes.
0: I'm, I'm really annoyed at this. And I, I just want to state at every possible public chance that I should be the last author because it's really Christina and Florian who are the masterminds <laughs> behind the project.
2: Well, we are logo- logocentric. We believe together. in the alphabet.
3: <laughs> 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 well, and and it really only came together when you joined it, John. So, and, you know, in the end, just I, I'm happy with being a hedgehog.
1: It's <laughs> a <laughs> <raise. Your> collaboration. <laughs> Wonderful, that's great. Yeah, thank you, John, for for the note. Uh, that's sure. important. yeah, it is when we're talking about power structures, right? And and how um and and in the U.S. and and the publications of the first author, yeah, that's that's a, an entire entirely different conversation. But again, thank you, um, thank you all, and thank you all for our listeners for to tune in um, for turning in tuning in today. Uh, until next time, everyone. Cheers. Thank you Enjoy. for having us, Marcy. Thank you.